Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves. Feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I'm Alva. I'm Anoush. And I'm Stephen. And you're listening to the New Statesman podcast. On today's episode, we mark the terrible milestone of 100,000 deaths from coronavirus. We look at what went wrong and you ask us, will the Conservatives pay the price of that electorally and should Labour be doing better? So we've reached a terrible milestone this week in the UK. 100,000 people have died with coronavirus in the UK since the beginning of the pandemic, which is the worst death rate in Europe and one of the worst in the world by any measure. So we thought that to coincide with a special issue of the magazine to mark this milestone, we would look back at what has led us there. So if we go back to March, I think I suppose those mistakes are are the obvious ones. Like we can kind of agree that we locked down too late in March and there was so little known about the virus and that collectively Western European countries made a big error there. Yes, yeah. I think that's probably one of the sort of standout mistakes that if you sort of asked someone on the street, which obviously you're not allowed to do now, but if you did, they would probably say, and you can see from the polling as well from at the time and since then, that we locked down too late. And whether or not that was a sort of unique British mistake or not, that was a mistake. And we can say that that caused more harm than good, the sort of dithering before locking down. And the suggestion that, you know, we we may not even need to quite late into March as well. And, you know, all sorts of statements that we heard from our leaders, Boris Johnson saying he'd shaken hands with people who had coronavirus and, and some of the things that the senior scientists and medical officers were saying too, suggesting that herd immunity could potentially be a way out of it. We now know that all of those kind of statements and, and, and the dithering that they, they brought with them what was a big mistake. And that's something that's kind of been repeated, I think, during the, during the crisis. So, you know, the politicians, when that 100,000 deaths milestone was hit, were very keen to say, you know, now is not the time to look back. There will be a time when we have to answer questions about things that 
we've done differently, but we should look forward. And they were very keen on sort of centering the vaccination program into their answers about about what's happened. But I do think that, that they should be trying to answer those questions now because it's been the the mistakes have been so repetitive. So with various, you know, things that they've they've tried to do to try and re-stimulate the economy as well as to try and suppress the virus. This balance that they're trying to strike has been a problem all the way through. And it's something that Stephen's written about really well all the way through, how you just can't have both worlds because you end up with the worst of both worlds, like you said at the beginning of the podcast, Alva. So that that problem needs to be identified and it needs to be acknowledged by politicians and they need to hold themselves to account for it as well as answer other people's questions about it because otherwise they end up making the same mistakes over and over again. Equally, you know, with the impact of the restrictions, they make the same mistakes over and over again with how they help us through this crisis, you know, coming to us too late with answers about how they're going to support businesses through the next tier or the next lockdown. People who are self-employed, people who are who have fallen through the gaps of support still haven't got that support in place. You know, we're still having that same old back and forth row about whether children are going to be fed over half term or not. These things, you know, feel very repetitive now because we've covered them every time. You know, sometimes I get (laughs) one of our editors getting in touch being like, are you going to do anything on, you know, children not having laptops? And you're like, didn't I already do that? And it's because it's the same problem every time. So I do think they need to be answering these questions now because it obviously has a bearing on how you cope with the rest of the crisis. I think that attitude, as well as the sort of we can go through all of the individual failings, which we have been, you know, twice a week, really, since last March. But um, that attitude is is the biggest failing of all, isn't it? Yeah, and there's a thinking specifically about the first lockdown. There's a really good BBC documentary called Lockdown One, colon, following the science, which is sort of about the collective scientific failure to, to make the right recommendations early enough to the UK government and by extension, a problem with the scientific advice in other European or Western countries. I think that that's worth watching because I think my view the whole way through is that, I mean, the UK was particularly late locking down in March. And as you said, there were those stories about pursuing herd immunity and so on. So I think it it looked particularly bad for the UK with the first wave. But I think that that documentary does sort of look into it because it is the testimony of a lot of scientists themselves reflecting on what they didn't know and what they were slow to learn and so on but I think the thing for me has always been that you know that there was more than more than just a first wave of this and over the summer I wondered this was sort of before that you'd like to help out but I did think sort of as we were just starting to unlock and the consensus everywhere was that we locked down too late for the first lockdown I thought well you know we're definitely going to see a second wave of the virus in the winter not because I had some sort of crystal ball but because that was what literally everyone was saying that I mean unless you have a really really effective test and trace system to contain cases as more and more more things open and there are more and more social contacts and schools go back there's so much household mixing when people go back to university and then the temperature is dropping so people are mixing more indoors and the virus survives better in colder conditions like clearly we were going to see a second wave and we were sort of talking about that in anticipation and I thought 
well, you know, having locked down too late once, clearly we're not going to make that mistake again. And in a way, I thought that it was, this is a weird phrase perhaps, but that it was all to play for because actually you could handle your first wave badly, but that for the second wave, maybe things would turn out differently, that it would be which countries learnt the lessons best and used their lockdowns well enough to prepare for the next waves of the virus or to or to prevent the next wave or waves of the virus and so I think I think I'm still honestly just just very surprised that we've managed to even before we go into other strategic mistakes I'm just really surprised that you know as far back as May maybe we were saying and everyone was saying oh you know the UK locked down too late I'm just amazed that we then locked down too late twice over I like actually kind of can't believe it when I think about it sometimes because that was like the top line of what we got wrong. You didn't even have to think very much about it. That would be the number one thing you would try to avoid the next time. But then I suppose there are lots of other things apart from just locking down too late. Stephen, you've written quite a lot about the halfway house approach that has characterized the government's strategy. And I think that has quite a big part to play in this really terrible death toll. I basically think there are there are three distinct buckets of failure in a British context that you can kind of point to. There's the sort of shared Western European bucket, right, which is not locking down quickly enough in March. We basically everywhere in Western Europe kind of locks down at the same point in its epidemic, other than Italy. No one across Europe really seems to be like, hmm, I wonder if that if what's happening there has some implications for our policy choices. And it's pretty clear from the sage minutes we have, and I would be astonished if it turned out, you know, from the sage minutes we have, from what, you know, government scientists were saying publicly, then broadly the public health consensus across uh, Western Europe was, sure, you can get like, you know, the Orientals to lock down, but here in the freedom-loving West, you know, that's not going to happen, which is deeply troubling. Like, you know, the reason why I've chosen to phrase it in that way is, is that, People don't think enough about the fact that Taiwan is a democracy, South Korea is a democracy. Do we think that Australia and New Zealand are, you know, particularly influenced by Confucianism? Uh, and yet, like, in March, that was quite clearly the sort of underlying kind of like, oh, well, you know, those people, they're very cruel, which was obviously kind of a sort of system-wide catastrophe. I do think that for all of the reasons that you've laid out, Anoush, it's still important to probe those things because that would almost certainly have helped improve the response afterwards. There was kind of second bucket of failure, which I guess is also kind of, is sort of Europe-wide, but I think is actually even more inexplicable, which is this kind of isolation, I don't know her. Like, it's it's never worked. There is no evidence that you can, there is a point in a test and trace system if you do not then have, like, the arm of the state coming down and going, Right now, now you're off to you know your porter cabin or your premier in or your etc etc and the kind of weird lunacy that at the same time that we weren't investing in centralized isolation, you know something which maybe hospitality could have been given some money to help run. We were spending five hundred million pounds in order to ambiently increase the number of resting cases. And I think the thing people often forget: people go, like, "Oh well, there wasn't a, there wasn't a spike during Eat Out to Help Out." Well, because the rate of case growth is exponential. Just having a slightly higher ambient number of cases in the community in the summer does increase the difficulty of the challenge in the winter. So that's kind of bucket two. And then bucket three is this kind of 
very distinct, and I think actually probably is this, the bucket that bucket one I think would have happened did happen to everyone in Western Europe. That doesn't mean it's something we should go. Oh well, what can we do about it? But it means that the solutions will be more difficult, and I think then it's the thing that the inquiry will be the most useful for. Bucket two is is actually in some ways mainly an indictment of the press in the why aren't we doing more in isolation feels to me like a fairly simple question that we could and should have asked more. And then bucket three, I think, is basically just don't have Boris Johnson as your prime minister. I, I don't think Jeremy Hunt or, I mean, even someone who I think has been on the wrong side of every ideological argument and every strategic argument during this pandemic, pretty much. If Rishi Sunak was prime minister, he would not have been like, hmm, maybe I can maybe I can have it both ways. And I think the interesting thing about the can I have it both ways, and I think this speaks to like Alva's kind of, well, how did we end up doing this twice? Isn't, if you look at what we're doing now, where we are finally sounding cautious, I think, to be honest, the, the truth of why that's happening, this is very much yeah, the, the view of, of people across both sides of this debate in government, is that it's not that Boris Johnson has gone, oh, in a pandemic, you need to, I've now realised that in a pandemic, you need to overreact, go early, everything you do now is what, you know, you only get the benefits in two weeks' time. Isn't he's basically going, oh, well, I listened a bit to Rishi last time and he was wrong. So now I'm going to listen to Matt. And in the first, second set of mistakes, as it were, they're going, oh, well, the scientists told us, you know, there's no point locking down. People won't do it. It's too difficult. And it turns out the public loves lockdown. So why should we listen to them when they're going, no, 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 really, we shouldn't, we shouldn't unlock at this pace. There's basically been an awful lot of kind of Boris Johnson doing that. I've been failed by my ministers. I've been failed by my advisors. But actually, the thing lots of Conservative MPs will say when you ask them what they think about who's had a good crisis is they'll basically say, well, I think that, that both Rishi and Matt have done the right thing. It's the Chancellor's job to worry about the money and it's the health sector's job to worry about the health. Now, parking for a moment, I think that Rishi Sunak's understanding of the economic implications of what he was doing was wrong. I actually think that that is perfectly reasonable, right? The, the follow-up point they will make next is completely true, which is it's the Prime Minister's job to decide rather than to do what the Prime Minister has consistently done, which is go, why not both? And yeah, and that to me is kind of the why is we haven't learned from anything, because like, oh God, I think I did do this in a column at some point, as you say, and it really is just kind of the most groundhog day. Sort of, like, this is the thing about having Boris Johnson as, as Prime Minister. He, he never learns. Like, you know, his, his failings as Prime Minister are the same as his failings as Mayor. We know were the same as his failures as Editor of The Spectator, where he basically did need, like, you know, a deputy editor to, like, do all of the all of the legwork and that hasn't changed yeah it's it's not you know why we ended up with the problems we had in March it's not why I had all the problems we had in April but in terms of the completely avoidable mistakes made in June July November December they all come down I think to the personal failings of the principal Mm. yeah and 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 the counter argument to that which I which I've often heard from people who you know are otherwise telling me terrible stories about their, what they're going through is, oh, you know, no one saw this coming. We've never had anything like this before. I feel sorry for the government. Any party in power would, would also be struggling. You know, I often, often hear that argument still. And so even if, but even if you take that argument in good faith and you think, okay, maybe that's, maybe that's true. It is incredibly challenging and, and other countries have had the same challenges that we have. I still think that the UK was in a bad situation in terms of being hit with a big health crisis because when we look through all that data that 10 years of data 
about the impact of austerity on our sort of public health and sort of resilience in situations like this, we did find that the prevalence of certain illnesses like diabetes and obesity had increased in recent years. And you can kind of follow it on a graph. It's basically when the cuts kick in, it starts going up again. And I think, you know, we did speak about it at the time last year in February when the Marmot review came out about health inequality. That showed that life expectancy was was stalling in, in England and that the sort of the number of people who spend time in poor health had gone up since 2010. So I do think that the sort of state of health in this country and just the general health of the country and also the, the increasing picture of health inequality in the country had had gone up before it hit and to coincide with the fact that our sort of local public health and and local government resilience had degraded in that time i think that also created the conditions for a lot of deaths in a situation like this okay you couldn't know that a pandemic was around the corner but you know our we we were supposed to be prepared for for a crisis like this and and our resources were run down you know we had big gaps in recruitment in the health service and other areas and people's actual health was not in a very good state even before this virus started spreading so i think even when people sort of wheel out the argument that it would have been a challenge for Keir Starmer too and it's a very difficult balance to strike those things are true but then you've got to think about what successive Tory governments have done to the state of public health and and of the public realm as well. And I, I do think that's important to bring into it because when people ask, why have we had the most deaths or why are we the country with one of the highest numbers of deaths? And you, then you have to look at how how people were before it even began. A thing I've I've been thinking about sort of weirdly, just because I, I was, I've been listening to some different podcasts on this, is a sort of parallel with the Irish famine in that the disaster of a million people dying from the Irish potato famine, I mean, there were lots of famines, but the the big obvious one, is that the British government thought it was over and withdrew economic support because it didn't want to take the economic hit anymore in simple terms. So it was Peel and then Lord John Russell. And the beginning of the response is generally considered by historians to have been quite good. And just speaking in broad terms, it like really the the big problem was the point where it looked like it was getting a bit better, but Britain was in a quite severe economic crisis and spending about 50% of national income on debt servicing costs. And it didn't think that it could provide the same level of economic support to the Irish anymore. And so things like soup kitchens that had been so vital to preventing people from dying from all of the health conditions associated with hunger and malnutrition, they were withdrawn. And that's when it got worse. And it's only really in broad brush strokes that you see the parallel because there are so many differences. But I just think, you know, we look at the summer and it was the view of the Chancellor that he had done the right thing, supporting the economy during the crisis, but now it was time to, you know, rein things in a bit because you can't do that sort of emergency spending forever. You're worried about the economy. I suppose implicitly there was some sort of feeling that it wasn't going to be as bad again. And if you kind of pushed Rishi Sunak on that, you'd be like, why? You know, we don't have a vaccine. Treatments like dexamethasone are probably going to slightly reduce the death rate. And in theory, we should have a 
a test, trace and isolate system that should be able to contain cases, but there's not really a guarantee of that, especially since we're not paying people to isolate. But there was just, I think, this implicit assumption that it wasn't going to look like the first wave again. You know, this idea that you could kind of live with it, which didn't really understand, I think, the nature of exponential growth, like you mentioned earlier, Stephen, this idea that you could keep cases sort of petering along at a low level, and that that would never just sort of end up looking like a, a sudden exponential curve is, you know, is mad. You, you have to really suppress quite hard to keep a thing that will grow exponentially flat. You need to learn in a crisis not to let up too early. Like part of your emergency response is still acknowledging that it's an emergency until it until it definitely isn't. And I wonder if there's a lesson for that going forward. I mean, we talked a lot before the, the Christmas unlocking, which I think is one of the most frustrating decisions of the entire pandemic, because we now have, you know, we've had a worse third wave slash second wave than the first because of, of those decisions. Like there's quite a clear line between human behavior and activity around Christmas and the really high sad numbers of deaths we're now observing. I mean, we were saying then that it would be such a tragedy when vaccines were beginning to be rolled out if we let our guard down at the 11th hour basically and I think that that's kind of what we did but I also think we're still not out of the woods and there still is quite a lot of pressure from the conservative backbenches for the government to unveil an opening up plan which it has said it will do in the next few weeks and unfortunately because of the way we opened up last time we don't know which measures have what impact on the rate of transmission it's different anyway with a different variant but we didn't open things up one by one to measure that so I think there's still a risk that we don't really know what that looks like if you have vaccinated a large proportion of the most vulnerable people but you let the virus spread much more widely among younger healthier people because people even if they are much less likely to be seriously ill from it and much, much less likely to die from it, a proportion of those people are still going to get very sick from it and and a proportion of those people are going to need to be hospitalized with it. So there's kind of no guarantee that that won't also cause the double problem of overwhelming the health service when doctors and nurses and everyone who works in hospitals at the moment are so exhausted having worked flat out for a year. But that also that you still, if you open up too quickly for the final time, you still cause all of the long-term health impacts of giving kind of healthy people a quite bad virus. And, you know, so I think that there's so many lessons to learn looking back on it. I think that one of them is, is not thinking that it's over too soon. If you've been enjoying our podcast and want to find out more about what we think and some of our colleagues too, then why not subscribe to The New Statesman? You can get 12 weeks for £12. Go to newstatesman.com forward slash subscribe 12.
Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. And now it's time for a section we like to call You Ask Us. So we've had a, a lot of questions on this topic and we're continuing on with the theme from the first section. So one question that we've had is, will the over 100,000 COVID deaths in the UK affect the Conservative Party's prospects in the next general election? But also given the number of questions we've had on this, should the Labour Party be performing better in the polls given the record on coronavirus or given that this death toll has happened under the Conservatives' watch. Stephen, what do you think on, on both of those? The answer to, to, you know, will it affect the Conservatives is it is already. One of the things I find a bit interesting about the um, fact that yeah, across the political spectrum, right, from you know, broadly, like people who are kind of like, you know, Starmer allies will go, oh, you know, we need to do this. We need to double down on the things Keir's done well. People who dislike him from the left will be like, oh, you know, this is because he's, you know, too weak and muddled. People who dislike him from, yeah, the various points to his right will go, oh, this is because he's insufficiently Blairite. This is because he doesn't sufficiently learn from David Cameron, etc., etc. Now, obviously, there are some of those criticisms I am sympathetic to for other reasons, but I actually think that the interesting thing is when you look around the the rest of the world, right, the Conservatives have suffered an electoral penalty for their handling of the pandemic. Boris's coronavirus bounce has basically unwound. Now, I would say there is a perfectly reasonable kind of, you know, Starmer sceptic from whichever one of those multiple positions you occupy, which goes, yeah, but the main reason why that's happened is, is, is Dominic Cummings' gate rather than anything than the opposition has has done but basically right political parties do stuff that stuff loses loses or gains them support and the 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 idea right if you're a successful government yeah electorally successful i mean is that you make sure that the kind of the stuff that makes you unpopular has either sort of been forgotten by the time of the election or is not sufficiently unpopular making you can't win a majority again or is you know causes things that are themselves popular right so just to take trams as like an obvious example, right? When when they built the trams in Croydon, people, you know, complained about them all the time. Same in Edinburgh, same in Manchester. And now, you know, if, if someone was to run as the, you know, get rid of the Croydon trams, get rid of the Manchester trams, get rid of the Edinburgh trams candidate, they would not get any votes. So I think the big thing that the Conservatives have, you know, the way that this will already affect the Conservative Party is that, you know, if you are, you know, VVD in, in the Netherlands or you are the CDU in Germany or if you're Likud or if you're, you know, basically any political party you care to name other than the UK, actually even, even Trump, right, we shouldn't forget, probably did still have a net better off from COVID. Mm. Yeah, it's not one of those things where it's like if Trump had handled the pandemic well. I mean, if Trump had like turned up for work, right? If like the stimulus checks had been a bit more generous, if like he had, if he had not, you know, done multiple kind of like, hey, I'm doing a super spreader event, he would be president now. So I think it has affected the Conservative Party simply because our bounce is not, yeah, our country's bounce towards the incumbent is not 
tracking where you would expect it with other countries. The follow-up question, which in some ways feels the same, but in some ways I think is actually quite different, is to what extent is that about things Labour have proactively done? I have Labour done a good job of managing the challenge of it's a pandemic, so everyone wants people to rally around the government. People don't like political squabbling at the best of times. And they've managed to like perform being supportive. But at the end of it, people think Boris Johnson is more incompetent than they did at the start. The Conservative bounce has, has unwound faster than ever. Have they, is that because they Labour have done the right things? Or is that because in defending Dominic Cummings and a variety of other things, you know, eat out to help out, the like, go forth and multiply over Christmas. Oh, wait, we regret to inform you that coronavirus is spread by human contact. Is it just because the things that the government has done have been so visible that they've done worse? But I think one way or the other thing we can say is that there has already been a cost. I think that will have impacts in the course of the parliament, whether because we look back and go, oh, well, that meant they were already more, more unpopular and that meant when they had to do other unpopular things, it became electorally fatal or we'll look back and go oh of course Dave you turned on you know you know tearing up the working time directive because how could they possibly have done that in the same parliaments having messed up the pandemic yeah I think it's really interesting what you're saying about the international context of of the polling particularly for the incumbent and that the conservative party have basically been performing poorly if you look at it in that context because I think a lot of people look at sort of the current polling whatever's come out of YouGov latest and it might say that Labour and the Conservatives are neck and neck and think how on earth can can this be when you know a hundred thousand people have died and and all these mistakes have, have been exposed that the government have made during the handling of the crisis and then feel frustrated at the opposition for perhaps not opposing enough or opposing effectively enough and actually it is interesting that if you actually look at the picture in the context of other countries and their and their oppositions, the Conservative Party is actually doing quite badly. Particularly if you think that if you if you remember that our vaccination program has been going well on on the face of it and that they can tell a good news story about it every single day, you'd think that that sort of incumbent bounce or at least that feeling that something's in control and there is some end in sight would lead to a better showing in the polls for for the Tories. So that's a, a caveat to these questions as well. And I do think that that's important to remember. But I do agree with you, Stephen, that it's not the same as saying that Labour's approach to opposition during this time has necessarily been completely effective. It's telling that Boris Johnson still every time at PMQ says, we all need to unite together. People want a united front. He's not saying that just to sound nice or to sound like a sort of unity prime minister. He's saying that because that's what people, that is what people say. That is a public sentiment that is quite prevalent. And we've been picking that up from people that we've been interviewing throughout this crisis, really, is is that is that distaste for party politics, even if there's a great deal of dissatisfaction with the way that things have been dealt with. So I think that's something that Keir Starmer and his team, I don't know. I mean, they 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 were sort of performing this constructive criticism and sort of cooperative opposition for a while. But I'm not sure if that necessarily has been particularly effective because they have had to oppose a hell of a lot because as we listed in the in the main section of this podcast there have been a number of avoidable errors and and repeated mistakes so of course the Labour Party have had to drop that kind of cooperative sheen to their criticism but what that comes with is is the other vulnerability that I think the Labour Party have and they haven't quite managed to overcome is this image of 
capped in hindsight and sort of pushing pushing the door when it's already opening and schools should be opened as soon as possible well yes you know the, the government ministers have, all, have already said that and everyone kind of agrees so you know there, there's certain things that they go big on that you kind of think yeah I mean that everyone's saying that and and I'm not sure if that's been particularly effective in all cases where they have been really good I think is where they've done their own research and that and they've exposed certain things about how businesses would miss out x amount in the tier system than they did during the original lockdown the number of people who have been left out of support altogether they've exposed some interesting things about what the failure of government to do certain things will result in so I thought that the the idea of the cutting of the uplift to universal credit they played really well because as we know that would affect six million families and I think they exposed that effectively and perhaps that is the best thing to go on but I do think it has been a sort of patchy response from them and perhaps that is reflected in some of the polling. I suppose you could characterize Labour's response to the to the crisis as quite cautious but actually the way you were mentioning Anush the way Labour has has really challenged in certain areas particularly around cronyism and waste and so on there are particular areas where individual shadow cabinet ministers have been quite bold and probably have held the government to account on certain issues quite effectively even if it's not really credited in general as a labor thing they've definitely pushed the story along but I do feel like in general the messages that are fronted by Keir Starmer personally tend to come across as quite cautious. The only real time you see him take a political risk is really when it's barely a risk. Like you've already seen the Sage Minutes recommending a lockdown and then you come out and ask for one. Like I remember feeling all excited by that at the time because he hadn't really done things like that. But in hindsight, that was a complete no-brainer. There was really no, no downside. And actually within the past few weeks, he did say at PMQs that this lockdown wasn't working and that restrictions would need to be tougher. That was another example of, you could call it a risk, but it basically isn't because that hasn't proven to be the case. That you know The lockdown is enough to bring the case rate down and no one really cares because he's the leader of the opposition. It doesn't really matter that he said that and called that one wrong everyone has kind of forgotten and also it's kind of fair enough so he's he's made interventions like that but we, yeah we don't really see quite bold interventions from him personally and it cuts two ways I, I kind of wonder sometimes what what it would be like if Lisa and Andy were leading the Labour Party and I think it wouldn't be as cautious so then I think that there would be like higher highs and lower lows I'm not actually sure because because we'll never really know. I actually don't know whether maybe it's fine to be cautious in opposition and leave the government to to make its own mistakes and to, you know, to argue amongst itself over its pandemic response and and you know, watch conservative backbenchers putting the front bench under pressure and so on. Maybe that's fine and you let you let the government take the heat without making it all about you as the Labour Party. But I think that probably if Lisa and Nandy were leader or were just you know you can imagine a different leader being bolder calling for things and sort of setting labor apart more clearly on certain issues rather than just sort of calling the government a bit slow and I think that would, would in the round have probably paid off for labor 
in the then looking back you would be able to point more clearly to the differences in your two approaches for example Labour isn't really in a position to be too critical of the Christmas unlocking because it did initially support it and you know with a few caveats and then eventually it called on Boris Johnson to to change the rules but basically it didn't say on day one this is plainly madness and so even though lots of other people were thinking this is plainly madness, they can't necessarily point back to, to those things. I think if if we had a different leader of the opposition, we probably would be seeing more wins, but also just more errors as well because, because they wouldn't be being as cautious. So I think we actually don't really see Keir Starmer making that many huge mistakes. I think there was maybe a small one in calling for all critical workers to be included in the priority groups. So along with the 65s to, to over 50s and the clinically vulnerable, calling for all those people to be vaccinated next. But that's a popular policy. We're certainly vaccinating teachers. It is, it's popular, even though it has been kind of discredited in parts of the media, it's kind of flopped. That maybe is also kind of fine. People aren't paying that much attention they think that it's probably fine to vaccinate teachers and that's a good idea, even though that isn't really the problem in schools. So yeah, I think we're not seeing very many mistakes for, from Keir Starmer. I don't think he's he's necessarily making that much of an impact, but we can only imagine the counterfactual of a punchier leader of the opposition who's making more mistakes as well as more wins. You've been listening to the New Statesman podcast with me, Alva Ray, and my colleagues, Anusha Kellyan and Stephen Bush. You can find me on Twitter at Pronounced Alva. You can find me on Twitter at Anoush underscore C. And you can find me on Twitter as at Stephen KB. We're produced by Nick Hilton and our music is Devil with the Devil, licensed under Creative Commons. Thanks for listening. And please do leave us a review. Trust in politics is broken. So can we get UK politics working again? That was the last time we were happy. 2012. I'm Beth Rigby, Sky's political editor. Join me every week with Labour's Jess Phillips and Conservative peer Ruth Davidson for some electoral dysfunction. This idea of nuance has completely left politics. Together we'll focus on the policies that could deliver political satisfaction. Follow electoral dysfunction wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, Freddie here. I want to tell you about a new way you can support the New Statesman's independent journalism. Every morning I send out Morning Call, our daily newsletter covering everything you need to know about British politics. It's free to sign up, plus for just £3 a month, you'll get a recommended daily piece of ours sent to you in full, plus exclusive polling analysis from Ben Walker, a weekly update from Will Dunn, and our featured piece on Sundays. If you enjoy this podcast, you'll love Morning Call. Head to morningcall.substack.com and subscribe now.